Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast, Episode Number 30, Maureen Howard, Bringing Demonstrative Evidence in from the Cold. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang, from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. Our goal is to bring a virtual workshop to you every week throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Maureen Howard. Maureen is Associate Professor of Law and Director of Trial Advocacy at the University of Washington School of Law. Among other things, she teaches evidence, civil procedure, criminal procedure, and trial advocacy. She is widely published on trial advocacy issues, is co-author on a treatise on Washington evidence law, and is a longtime member of the Pattern Jury Instruction Committee for the state of Washington. Our podcast today features Maureen's new article, Bringing Demonstrative Evidence in from the Cold, the Academy's Role in Developing Model Rules, which was co-authored with Jeffrey Barnum and published last year in the Temple Law Review. In the article, Maureen takes aim at an area of evidence law that I've long thought of as confused and under-theorized, demonstrative evidence. As she notes in the article, the use of demonstrative evidence has exploded in recent decades. Attorneys have wisely harnessed the power of technology to enhance their arguments, and modern juries have come to expect such bells and whistles. But despite the importance of demonstrative evidence, we don't have a lot of rules or guidance on its proper use. As evidence scholars, we have labyrinthian sets of rules for hearsay and character evidence. But what are we supposed to do with a computer simulation or an in-court demonstration? More often than not, courts simply muddle through. Maureen's article offers some much-needed clarity on this issue and then proposes some paths forward. Maureen, delighted to have you on Excited Utterance. Happy to be here, Ed. Good to talk to you. Demonstrative evidence. I suspect this goes for most of our listeners, but prior to reading the article, I thought that I understood what demonstrative evidence was. Your article suggests that perhaps we shouldn't be so confident that there are some ambiguities over how people define this category. Can you tell us more about demonstrative evidence and how you think it's best defined? Absolutely. So like you, I came through law school and then I've had 30 years in court, both as a trial lawyer and a judge, and I thought I knew what demonstrative evidence was as well, at least initially. And that was the idea that I couldn't lay a foundation for a piece of evidence to be the real thing. So let's say I can't establish it as the beer bottle used in a bar fight but I can establish it is darn similar. It's the same size, shape, made of the same material, and I get that foundation from the witness, and then I ask the witness, would this help you with your testimony? If I have that foundation, I could offer it into evidence. It actually is marked as an exhibit. It's admitted into evidence. It becomes part of my substantive evidence for both sufficiency against emotion for judgment as a matter of law and on appeal, but generally doesn't go back to the jury deliberation room. So over the years of practice, though, I started thinking, why is that? Why, if it's admitted, doesn't it go back to the jury deliberation room? So I started doing research and I started interviewing lawyers and judges nationally. I do a lot of teaching nationally, internationally in the area of trial advocacy. And I teach with some premier professors of evidence, trial advocacy, federal judges, state judges, 
And I found that all these folks disagreed on what demonstrative evidence was definitionally and how it could be used at trial. And then I started combing evidence textbooks and treatises. And those authors, many were silent entirely, but many of them just acknowledged that there wasn't a consistent definition. There was conflict in both definition and use. It was very jurisdiction dependent and very judge dependent within a given jurisdiction. So in 2013, we have the Seventh Circuit faced with a question of demonstrative evidence and Judge Hamilton writing for the court says, yes, this is a mess. The use of the term demonstrative evidence, first of all, it's used interchangeably with other labels, illustrative evidence, demonstrative exhibits, demonstrative aids, illustrative aids, and evidence or exhibits admitted for illustrative purposes only. And so the court said, we are going to focus on the facts before us, but this is a mess. So what is demonstrative evidence or what are the various definitions? One is the one that I thought it was as a young practicing lawyer, which was it was an assist to a witness's oral testimony to help the jury understand the oral testimony. But it was marked as an exhibit. It was offered and it was admitted. But there was a concern by judges generally that the jury might misuse that evidence if it were sent back to the jury deliberation room. And so it did not go back to the jurors along with the other exhibits. Looking through the cases, looking through law review articles and evidence textbooks, different definitions have come up. So we now have definitions that include that a demonstrative exhibit is really only a demonstrative aid. It's an illustrative aid. It's not an exhibit and not admitted into evidence at all. And that was the case in the Bow versus Cuprum case out of the Seventh Circuit in 2013. That was a ladder that the judge allowed to be used as a demonstrative exhibit, the term of the trial court, but no party marked it as an exhibit. No party elicited testimony from a witness for foundation. No party offered it into evidence. It was not admitted, and the court said plainly it's not substantive evidence. Nonetheless, the jurors wanted to see this ladder that had been reconstructed by the defense and had been used during the course of the expert witness's testimony on behalf of the defense. The jury said, we'd like to see the ladder. Plaintiff objects says it's not evidence. It wasn't admitted. You stated it's not substantive evidence. The judge says, well, we'll allow the jury to come into the courtroom and look at it because you're right. It's not substantive evidence. On the third day of deliberation, the jurors kept pestering the judge and the judge said, all right, we are going to send it back to the jury deliberation room. But a note, I'm allowing you to look at the ladder. You can examine it, but don't reconstruct the occurrence. And shortly after receiving the ladder, the jurors returned a verdict for the defense. So that's the complete opposite end of the spectrum. And then there are all sorts of intervening definitions, which include that it is an exhibit, but it's used only as an aid. But we call it an exhibit. It's admitted, but it's used only as an aid. And it's not part of the evidence on appeal. Those are just a few of the many, many definitions, and it's a wide spectrum of definition. And again, there just isn't consistency even within a given jurisdiction. And that was noted by the Seventh Circuit. What is the source of the confusion? Why is it that courts can't seem to get their definition right or their procedure on how to handle this kind of evidence right? Well, I have a theory. My theory is going back to early common law and early trials. We had oral testimony and virtually 
no recordation initially, and then very cumbersome recordation and cumbersome reproduction. And we had very, very few exhibits. Initially, we had the document that was at issue in a given case. It was the contract, the deed. Then we have an expanding universe of exhibit evidence. And so we go from having the documented issue to the thing involved in the dispute. And that's what most textbooks refer to as real evidence. So that might be the gun, the drugs, the knife. It's something that physically, it's physical evidence that was actually involved in the underlying litigation. Then that goes on to expand again to other tangible items that weren't themselves involved in the dispute, but the court then found that they do have probative value And so they meet the standard for admission under the federal rules of evidence. An example would be a map drawn scale by city engineers documenting property boundaries in a property dispute that then did and now is admitted as real evidence if the proper foundation is laid. And it's admitted for all purposes. It's considered by the jury. It goes back in jurisdictions that either demand or permit admitted evidence to go back to the jury deliberation room. It goes back to the jury. So we've got expansion, expansion, expansion. And as the universe of tangible items, non-testimonial items, evidence, as that grows, the evidence rules don't grow. So as there's intervening expansion, Trial judges use the rules that are given to them, and the federal rules are intended to be pithy and to give judges quite a bit of discretion because those are the boots on the ground looking at the evidence as it comes in. And so what judges did, in my opinion, they used rules 105, 403, and 611, at least the language, when they justify the admission of objects that weren't involved in the case, there usually is a reference, for example, there's an advisory committee note, 1972 advisory committee note to Rule 611 that gives support for a judge's discretion to manage the mode and operation of the trial. And this has been interpreted to include the judge permitting the use of, and again, the terminology differs, an illustrative aid, a demonstrative exhibit, admitting an exhibit for illustrative purposes only, all of that falling under the judge's discretion under 611. And then courts also admitted exhibits for illustrative purposes only as a form of a limited use of an actual admitted exhibit. So this would be the admission subject to a Rule 105 limiting instruction. So it's admitted, but the limit that the court gives is not a limiting instruction per se to the jury but it's a limit that it doesn't go back to the jury deliberation room. And so I think what we have is judges initially faced with the expansion of non-testimonial evidence using the rules available to them to cobble together a common sense approach to where does this evidence fit? It doesn't really fit in the rules as stated. It does meet the low threshold for relevance. There's no other rule barring it, but in a way it becomes sort of a 403 concern about misuse or overuse by the jury. So I think that that's where it came from was really a in the trenches, on the fly adoption of trial advocacy rules using the rules of evidence as they were interpreted. I want to poke at the involvement of the federal rules philosophically in this process. 
So on one hand, I might argue against your view that there's too much confusion and that we need to fix this by saying that maybe we're a little spoiled by the federal rules, that the federal rules have established a lot of uniformity across jurisdictions and across various courts. But in general, any kind of common law subject, we would expect that it would develop in fits and starts and there was going to be a lack of clarity for a long time. I teach torts. I think about torts all the time where you really don't have a clear rule. So on one hand, there's an argument, well, what's the big deal? The other interaction I see is perhaps because there are rules, judges almost don't want to create common law. They feel that they don't have the authority to create mini rules and that, in fact, we're getting more discretionary or arbitrary or lack of rules in this area because the federal rules somewhat reign supreme and then no one wants to fill in underneath them. Well, in my conversations with judges, no one's articulated that which you speculate, which is a reluctance to create common law in this space. In fact, the articulation by judges is we all know what demonstrative evidence is. And then when I have a discussion, there usually is a surprise because there's a belief expressed by the judges that they know demonstrative evidence when they see it and they understand what the use is. They don't think there's confusion and they do think that they're following a uniform practice so that there's reliable prediction by advocates and parties about the use of evidence prospectively. And yet I've had two judges on the same bench have arguments about the definition and the use. And so while I agree that the rules are broad and allow the judges to evaluate the admission, again, within the parameters of the rule, one of the troubling aspects is the lack of a standard in the federal rules that requires a judge to perform a certain analytic evaluation of evidence ends up with judges having analytically flawed reasoning that actually violates the underlying evidence rules. For example, some judges articulate that the reason an admitted exhibit is admitted into evidence but doesn't go back to the jury deliberation room is because the exhibit is demonstrative, it doesn't have probative value, it's not relevant in and of itself, and so it doesn't go back to the jury deliberation room. That articulation to me sounds as though the judge has found that it fails the low threshold of relevance and the rules state it shouldn't be admitted, period. It shouldn't be admitted. And I think a question becomes, if the evidence is not to be admitted, my view is that edict under the federal rules is it's not to be presented and considered by the jury. So for judges who articulate in their reasoning that an exhibit is admitted or even it's an illustrative aid, it can be shown to the jury, like in Bow versus Cutman, the Seventh Circuit case, that it can be shown to the jury, not admitted, not substantive evidence, but it can be presented to them. If the judge's analysis is it can't be admitted because it's not relevant, it's not probative, then Rule 401-402 states it can't be admitted. The courts get that part right. But if it can't be admitted, by necessity, it shouldn't be shown to the jury. The jury shouldn't consider it. So I think that there's a lot more harm. And I think that the Bow case is a great example because the judge's decision to allow the jury to look at a piece 
of evidence not admitted resulted in initially defense verdict. And of course, when the Seventh Circuit ruled that was inappropriate on retrial, the plaintiff won an $11 million judgment. I think it does affect outcome. I think the inconsistency also has real life implications for lawyers trying to prepare for settlement and trying to prepare for trial because it's difficult, if not impossible, depending on your jurisdiction, to know which of your evidence is going to come in, which of your opponent's evidence is going to come in. What should we do about this problem then? So if we agree that the inconsistency is a problem, how do we resolve it? And then I know you try to quite carefully avoid this question in your article, but I'm going to ask the question anyway. Substantively, what should the rule look like? Well, the hard question. I'm torn between two approaches. One is to just expand an advisory committee note, have a new advisory committee note to the basic rules of relevance and stating that all evidence is subject to the rules and that there is to be no differentiation between demonstrative evidence or any other evidence. It's just there's evidence and all evidence is subject to the rules. I think that would actually avoid a lot of what I perceive as and what I refer to as the shadow 403 analysis that I think judges do, which is they find a piece of evidence meets the threshold for admissibility, but they're uncomfortable letting the jury review it during deliberations. And so they pull it back. One cure would be, and some federal judges follow this, our federal judge, Marsha Peckman, in this jurisdiction tells lawyers who offer exhibits into evidence for illustrative purposes only or demonstrative purposes only. She says the rules of evidence don't distinguish. There's evidence and you have to meet the bar that the federal rules set out. I think that that would be a clean and easy standard to eliminate the subcategorization of evidence and then having judge-made rules that are inconsistent. Another thing might be to take the shadow 403 analysis out of the dark and make it express perhaps to have a 403A, which would be the existing 403. So the judge would do a balancing test in her discretion, looking to see if the probative value of a proposed piece of evidence is substantially outweighed by any of the potential harms, including unfair prejudice to a party. But then there'd be a 403B, and that would start to control what evidence actually goes back to the jury during jury deliberation. And the time for this may have come, too, given the dramatic change in the last 150 years and the type of evidence that is now presented and admitted. As I mentioned, initially, documentary evidence, exhibit evidence, was very, very limited. There might have been only the contract, the deed. And so the procedure was that that would go back to the jury deliberation room. Now we have cases with hundreds, if not thousands, of documents. And so we need to think a little bit about putting the burden on advocates to identify a subuniverse of all admitted exhibit evidence and propose that these exhibits be delivered to the jury deliberation room and then allowing the opponent to object. A question comes up whether or not jurors who to date don't have access to testimonial evidence, whether now with technology and the ease of producing, for example, CDs, indexed CDs of witness testimony, should that still be the rule? Why do we submit exhibit evidence to the jurors for consideration and for them to self-select evidence that they can review and mull upon, but we don't allow them to review the testimony of witnesses? 
And I presume it's because initially there was no record. Then when there was a record, it was very difficult and expensive to reproduce. And it was very difficult, if not impossible, for the jurors to manage it. But now it seems that the ability of jurors to access digital evidence or exhibit evidence and witness testimony that's now digital and easily accessed is comparable. And so maybe a 403B rule where advocates and parties could identify both oral testimony and or exhibits, and then the opposing party could object, and there'd be a second round of 403 consideration by the judge about what should go back to the jury. A final question for you, and this is the question that I often ask of all of our guests. Where would you like to see future scholarship in this area go? What's the ideal scenario for you? Is it that the advisory committee meets and does what you've proposed, or would you like to see more work done before we really move ahead with this? I think the issue is ripe. I'd like to see the advisory committee move immediately. I've had little success in lighting a fire under colleagues, both at the bench, at the bar, and in academia. Many times the answer is, again, we know what it means. I serve on our state pattern jury instruction committee, and we actually have a jury instruction that refers to demonstrative exhibit admitted, and then it goes on to say that it's not admitted. So there's inconsistencies within our own jury instructions here in Washington State. And the committee rejected my proposal to clean up the language and at least the titles that say it's not admitted, it's just used. And they said, oh, we all know what it means. And that is a response that is strangely consistent. And so I think what might need to happen, and I think I'm going to be the person that needs to do it, is to gather some empirical evidence that's a little bit more shocking. And I'm hoping that that might light a fire under the advisory committee. And so I've got a survey out to Washington state judges and lawyers, and I'm hoping with those results then to perhaps do a national survey. My hope is that the results will come back showing that what judges and lawyers in a given jurisdiction believe these terms mean and how the evidence or aids may be used is so dramatically different that the confusion really should be addressed. And the fix, I think, would be easy for the advisory committee. So I think it's my job to get the empirical information and to propose something that's an easy fix. And I think the time is now. Well, Maureen, thanks for raising some really important questions in this often neglected area of the law. I'm going to look forward to seeing the results of your empirical study and your survey. Thanks for taking the time to be on the show. Thanks for having me, Ed. Before engaging with Maureen's article, I had only one definition of demonstrative evidence. Illustrative material that we show to juries to supplement testimony, but which is not actual substantive evidence. As our discussion today has shown, that is not the only definition of demonstrative evidence out there. And while we may think that everyone knows what demonstrative evidence is, apparently that's not the case. That is important information to take to the bank. But I should note that unlike Maureen, I remain skeptical over whether demonstrative evidence requires immediate attention by the advisory committee. The article makes an extremely valuable contribution by making clear that demonstrative evidence requires greater reflection. But with that insight, it seems to me that now's the time for courts to develop the case law and for academics to debate alternative frameworks. 
Only after we have a consensus emerge from this common law process should we really have new rules. One of the disadvantages of the federal rules is that they create fixed points that stifle innovation, and I'd hate to see that happen here. Finally, I'd be remiss not to raise what I think is a really interesting philosophical perspective raised in the article that we didn't have time to cover. As scholars, we often worry about what kind of real-world impact our scholarship is having. Maureen suggests, however, that one of our greatest avenues of influence is through our students. By teaching our students and giving them a framework to think about things like demonstrative evidence, we mold future judges and attorneys on how to think about evidence. It's a super long-term view of things, but arguably one of the most effective tactics. So, as Maureen argues, rather than just telling our students that demonstrative evidence is a muddle, or by extension, any area of evidence is a muddle, our job is to try to make sense of it for them. And maybe by making sense of it for them, one day, we will have made sense of it for the entire legal system. Hopefully, that's a welcome jolt of inspiration for all of you grinding away on class prep. That does it for this week's episode of Excited Utterance. Support for Excited Utterance was generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brand Center Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. The associate producers for this episode were Alex Nunn and Margot Wilkinson-Smith, and the production editor was Carson Smith. Additional production assistance was provided by Aaron Parr Carranza, and music was provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join me again next week when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof. Thank you.